Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In order, unfortunately, to know who we are, we have to go through an enormous amount of testing and discomfort and excitement and loss and confusion. So we want somebody to tell us, okay, okay, you know who I am, even going to an astrologer, like, okay, you can read my chart now, tell me what to do, right? But even with this stuff, nobody can do that because we wouldn't be alive and doing this journey if somebody else had a menu or a map for us. It, it's just not that easy. Welcome to series 11 of the Not Perfect podcast, a show that's here to share conversations with world-leading thinkers to help us grow, stretch our minds, thrive, and heal from within. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author of Happy Not Perfect and entrepreneur. I've spent the last decade exploring how we can live better, support our mental health better, expand our consciousness, and feel full even when things feel turbulent. I hope you enjoy the show. On today's podcast, I am speaking to Satya Doyle-Biop, the psychotherapist and best-selling author of Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. And I cannot say enough how much I enjoyed reading this book. It beautifully encapsulates those confusing and uncomfortable in-between years. When you don't know quite if you're doing things right, you may have expected by a certain age you would have been married or with a certain job or earning a certain amount of money or living in a certain place. But then your reality looks quite different to the plans, the dreams and the expectations that you had for yourself. And in the gap between your expectations and reality, a lot of confusion and disillusionment can bubble up. Satya's book is rooted in Jungian psychology. She uses well-known tales like Goldilocks to help us understand the strange journey called life we all go on and addresses this gap between expectations and reality in such a calming and reflective way. So if you've ever felt undecided, a bit stuck, disappointed that life doesn't look exactly how you dreamed it might, then I hope you enjoy this interview with an amazing author and psychotherapist. What is a favorite quote you return to and why? There is a quote from Jung's Red Book that I have at the opening of my book, which I really love. But there's another one that comes to mind right now as well that's shorter. And I think encapsulates why Jung's work feels so relevant right now to me and why I'm hoping to introduce some of it to other and younger readers. There's a line in his Red Book that says, uh, I threw down my sword and dressed in women's clothes. And he's meaning it as symbolically about really trying to learn about the feminine in a culture that he understands has excluded the feminine. 
but he also may have meant it literally. And so I love this way that we can start reading Jung's work, which has not been, I think, properly translated to the modern dialectic, really starting to understand him as being inclusive of queer politics and feminist politics and racial politics and all that. I've only recently discovered just the true wonder of Jung, so I can't wait to hear more about that later on in this interview. What's a life lesson you've been reminded of recently? Everything is happening on its own time. I think, you know, with this book, but with so many other things, uh, the pandemic, we can want to rush through things and get to some goal we had in mind on our own time scale. And I find how important it is to really do our best to listen to what the world's time scale is or what is really I think of it as um, kind of reading the ocean if you're a surfer, you know, like really trying to honor, okay, are there waves or not? I may want to surf, but if there's no waves, I'm just going to be laying out there. So really trying to honor time. This such conflicting messages out there, this idea that you've got to go make it happen. You've got to create the waves. And then there's the opposite, which is, are there waves out there to help you surf? Where do you sit in that you can create whatever and then the listening to the signs and symbols you're being nudged in the direction of? Well, I try to sit in the middle of it, right? I mean, I think that, and this comes up a lot in my book too, but it's really core to Jungian psychology. It It is Taoist philosophy. So all of this is, and even the quote that I brought up of Jung's, it's about the balance of the opposites, right? The balance of the masculine and feminine, the balance of the pushing and the waiting. So I try to stay in the middle of it as much as possible. I don't think most folks would think of me as a wallflower or a passive person. I'm pretty engaged in the world, but I'm also in my own way in ways that people may not see at the same time, really trying to be receptive to what's happening in the universe, so to speak. So I try to hold both. And how do you understand the soul? For me, the soul is a living and for me, feminine energy that I am in relationship with all the time. And so I feel her as part of me inside my chest. She is a companion to the work that I do in the world. And I think giving her credence and respect is a huge part of of why I enjoy my life (laughs) and what I try to offer to other people that you really have a living soul that needs and wants your attention. And it may be the reason that many people are unhappy or that the world is not doing well is because we don't give her respect. And I don't think for everyone it's, it's a feminine, but there is a sense of this living energy, this living being that we all live, that we all have with us. And if we give her attention and respect, things open up and feel much more alive. That's such a beautiful answer. And when you were talking, it kind of reminded me of that. How can we give more respect to the things that give us joy? Whereas I feel, you know, when you were talking about how the world has almost forgotten the soul in many ways, because we've tried to put ourselves in boxes or followed these paths that may not feel good to us at all, but we think we should. So we do. Is that kind of what you were meaning? Definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I sometimes think of my, my work as being similar to Marie Kondo's work, you know, what sparks joy, (laughs) but 
another layer of it is really, it's sort of find what your soul responds to with joy. It's not acquisitional. It's not like, Ooh, I love that object. I mean, well, actually it can be right. It can be if people are aesthetically inclined or, but that it's not about commerce or capitalism or even getting a PhD, right? It's like, why is your soul here on this planet? What is it trying to achieve? And how can we as both ego selves and soul selves be in relationship, be in a marriage of sorts that is a joyful marriage versus an abusive or angry one. And this is why your book is a gift because it is such a guidebook, really in answering that much larger question in some ways. But in your own words, you could have written many books. You could have written the history of philosophy on so many different things. You're so incredibly knowledgeable about so many different areas. So why was it this book? This is the book that I had to write. I mean, this is the book that my soul's work would not be complete on this planet if this book did not come through me in some form. So that's the soul answer. Intellectually and emotionally, this is the book that I needed when I was 23, 24, 25, whatever. I needed an understanding of how to be on this complicated planet in this complicated country of America where I live and not feel as though, one, I was the only one who was dissatisfied with the sort of suggested course of things, but that I had some understanding of how to get through it joyfully and soulfully. So I needed a psychology book. I needed some kind of direction, but I also, it couldn't be, it couldn't be about the checking of boxes because I knew that wasn't what I was really looking for. In other words, I'd already done what society asked me to do and I was feeling empty and lost. So I needed a book to answer those questions. When I became a psychotherapist, it became clear that that book didn't exist for my clients in their 20s and also 30s and late teens. So, you know, again, I I felt deeply compelled to write it. So the book is called Quarter Life, and I am just about to turn 32. So I fully relate to this, in your words, disorientation with life. Why do you think we are so disorientated? And in your book, you, you write about how you kind of woke up and there just seems to be these like dead ends, life, broken expectations, jobs that are deeply uninspiring. Do you think this has always been the case? Do you think it's accelerating and why? Yes and yes. I think it has always been the case and I think it's accelerating. I think part of being alive is trying to figure out why we're here and what we're supposed to do with our existence. I think that's on some level core to being a body and a soul trying to make their way in this world is what are we doing here? Um, And some people ask that question earlier, like I did, and some people ask it much later. But generally speaking, I think most people get around to wondering what this is all about. But also when when we live in a society that is disconnected from nature, from natural rhythms, that is patriarchal, white supremacist, abusively heteronormative, there are a lot of people that feel the anguish of being in a world that does not either support them, but may in fact be trying to kill them (laughs) and emotionally abusing them on a regular basis. So that plus screens, technology, environmental devastation, we could go on and on, right? There's There's no question that people are feeling disoriented in the world and in their lives because the things that should be orienting us as mammals, as soulful creatures, aren't. 
here. They're absent. In your clients, are you noticing the same factors that are leading to these questions? Or are there particular situations that are making this quarter life crisis worse? It's different for each person, but we're all sort of swimming in the same polluted waters. Right. I I think a lot, and I talk about this in the book a bit, but because I draw on like old fairy tales in the book and mythology that is certainly hundreds or thousands of years ahead of our time and quarter lifers, people who are between, you know, childhood and adolescence and the midlife adult years, quarter lifers are in all of these stories throughout history, trying to find themselves. So I think it is both timeless and worse. (laughs) In other words, the sort of core of quarter life is to say, okay, who am I as an individual, not me as a son or daughter or sibling or whomever, who am I as an individual? I need to go find myself. I need to go understand my purpose. That's a core component of being in this stage of life. But it's as if when we don't have our tight knit communities, we don't have a religion that isn't dogmatic or abusive. Mm -hmm. We don't have some way to orient to nature it's like little ducklings that are trying to find the lake, but have first been spun around and placed in the middle of a forest. Like, well, now what? I know I'm trying to get to the lake. I have that instinct, but there's a reason that ducklings would get stuck and do get stuck in that situation. You write about we're taught logic in school, and yet the decisions in our lives seem and feel so illogical. I really relate to decision stress. Often, you know, the advice is listen to your instinct. But at this point, when you've been, you know, to use your metaphor of the ducklings, when you've spun around so many times, you've kind of lost connection to that instinct. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on this? And how do you think we could be taught better? Well, even just what you expressed is the beginning, right? It's that there is something wrong with our decision making processes, the way that most of us were trained to believe that essentially our left brain makes decisions, that it's logic or clear thinking. And if you just, you know, weigh the benefits and the negatives, you'll find the right answer. But we know from life, that's really not often how it works when we're just trying to live our lives. There is instinct that comes into play. There's hunches, there's strange desires we can't explain to anybody around us, even the people who love us most. So there's something else at play. And Poppy, I've been doing these interviews. You're you're the first one who's really, I think, gotten to the heart of it, which is these questions of soul. And if we have no relationship with this deep part of our inner self, it makes it very hard to know how to move about in the world when the questions are, I mean, I was going to say bigger than what do I want for lunch, but I think even what do I want for lunch gets exceedingly complicated. Yeah. So to know that one, we're not just these singular creatures. I think of myself as a dual being, which is there is my external self and there's my internal self. And for those two things to know how to communicate, that's life-changing. And I did not learn that in school. One thing I'm always reminded of is, I mean, they attribute it to William James, the happiness equation, expectations minus reality is the degree to how happy you are in that moment. And I feel like your book just sums this up completely because the expectations of on quarter lifers is so wildly different to their reality. Yes. How do you help people to navigate the gap between what they expect 
probably because culture told them that they could build three companies, fly around the world and go to space all the time before they're 23. And then suddenly things haven't turned out like that. What are your thoughts on that? The core answer is we have to find out who we are and how that being is interacting with the larger world. So I think of girlfriends of mine who, from the moment I knew them, wanted to have babies, but they were living in what they perceived of as a world in which, well, women first need to tackle a career and go after these accolades and whatever. And so they put off having babies until they almost, almost, almost could not have children anymore. And I mean, this is one specific friend I'm thinking of, but in a sense, she was doing what she thought the modern perception of women should do, but was really denying what her soul most wanted in this world, which was to be a mother. Now, of course, there are many, many women 50 years ago who did the opposite. And of course, time is irrelevant. It depends on culture and subculture and all this. But of course, the other story is how many women went from essentially their family home to a home with a husband and making babies, but what they most wanted in the world was to be a writer. It's this constant tension of society and self, but on any day-to-day basis, each of us is trying to sort through, how do I live my most true existence in relationship to whatever culture I was born into, whatever era I was born into? And I think that tension is exquisite on one level. It's where all storytelling comes from. But on a psychological level, it can be extremely painful (laughs) because we barely know who we are. And also we're trying to bring that being into existence in a world that may not respect it or want it, or we think won't, you know, that's a very complicated journey. I just think that you summed that up so well, that tension between kind of society and self. What's the difference between meaning types and stability types? I'm going to start a little bit further back in exploring meaning types and stability types and some of what doesn't end up in the book in understanding the way that quarter lifers have always gone about finding themselves in the world. And this is the timeless aspect of things. Historically, young men were kind of run through ritual initiations very often in cultures worldwide. And and there's some anthropological debate about this. But there were frequent rituals in which young men were sort of prepared to take on the world in some form. They were prepared to be hunters or journeyers, or I think of that sword that I mentioned Jung's at the beginning. It's this sort of sense of battle or strength or masculinity that takes on the world in some way. Women, meanwhile, young women were either sort of not initiated technically because they would have, they would start their periods, they would become physically ready to be mothers, and then they would become mothers. And so in many, many cultures, it was sort of understood that as women become pregnant and move through the journey of labor and then breastfeeding and motherhood, that they go through an initiation. And I, I think most women who have experienced that would agree there is an initiatory experience, sort of a transition from one life to another in, in being a mother. But if you want to translate that, that one, that gender binary, but two experiences that aren't really happening for many quarter lifers now, how do you translate that to a psychological framework? So while I don't get into this in the book, I begin the idea of meaning types and stability types with is 
different forms of initiation that don't need to still be about the gender binary and can be inclusive of everyone to understand that even now we are trying to initiate ourselves into the world in some way as young. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Young people. And we need some framework to understand how best to do that. So in other words, there are folks who tend to feel kind of like launching out into the world and taking on the world in some way and making things happen. And there's a kind of extroverted and willful and determined quality about those folks. And I call them stability types. And then there are other folks that are quite reluctant and uncertain and uncomfortable with the world as it is and don't really want to be participating in the standard structures of things and might be more creatively oriented or more sensitive. I call them meaning types. And I over and over have seen both of these types in my private practice and really felt clear that trying to give both of these types the same direction on how to go about their lives meant that they would sort of both be spinning because they need more personalized advice because in the end they're kind of going out things from opposite directions again this idea of like personalized advice I think that's a really something that I really try to focus on in the podcast because not so long ago we were all just reading the same articles and we had a very limited amount of television channels so we were all given the same advice we were all kind of watching the same thing and it feels a break away from that for us to be able to claim more individual advice that suits us rather than our best friend totally do you think that is always helpful or do you think it can become confusing too well Absolutely. It can become confusing because again, it's like in order to know what advice to follow, we have to know who we are. Mm. And if in order to know who we are, you have to stumble and fall a lot. And I thought that's what I wanted because that's what all my friends believe, or that's how I was raised, but it's not. There's so many moments where like I bring up Goldilocks in the book. I talk about Goldilocks with one of the clients in the book, but I think about that. It really is about testing our environments you know, is this right for me? No. Is this right for me? No. Is this right for me? Oh, that feels good. In order, unfortunately, to know who we are, we have to go through an enormous amount of testing and discomfort and excitement and loss and confusion. 
So we want somebody to tell us, okay, okay, you know who I am. Even, you know, I love astrology, but even going to an astrologer, like, okay, you can read my chart now, tell me what to do, right? But even with this stuff, nobody can do that because we wouldn't be alive and doing this journey if somebody else had a menu or a map for us. It, it's just not that easy. It's interesting because when I was reading the Godly Luck story, I was reminded of how much courage one needs to be Godly Locks to be able to move on to the next bowl of porridge, right? She could have just been so terrified that she would have said, this is good enough. It's good enough. So I'm going to eat it all, Right. But she didn't. It's actually a lot of courage to go, well, let me try another one. I love that. Yeah. What is your advice for people to go out and try new things, even if their risk assessment brains are saying, no, no, maybe, no, that seems scary. Let's just stay with the thing we've got. I think it's important to get a radar for your own fear, to do your best to learn what is the fear that is actually saying this is not safe. Mm. And what is the fear inside all of us that is actually, I don't want to, or no, 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 that's going to pull me out of my comfort zone, right? It's really hard to distinguish those two kinds of fear, but they're not the same. And I think to understand that we have cranky barometers and we have genuine self-protection barometers, like I wouldn't want to tell somebody all fear is just an indication that you need to try something and you're scared, you know, cause of course it's there to keep us safe in many respects, but it's also there to keep us limited. And I think different religious practices talk about the ego needing to sort of be well killed or, you know, I think of it as like, we need to give the ego a chance to, to grow and to mature So there's some pushback required inside of us to say, okay, I think, you know, we, I use the we as like the self, but like, we don't really want to travel with our friend or we don't want to do this physical activity that so-and-so wants us to do. But at the same time, there's something inside of us that wants it so bad. And so uncovering those conflicting feelings internally is so important versus just having the initial reaction and being done with it. Forging a career path is hard, especially for those just starting out. But what if you could learn from incredible women who have broken through, challenged the stereotypes and stepped into their power? I'm thrilled to share a fantastic new podcast with you, Walk Tall by Carolina Herrera, created by women for women, which I also had the pleasure of being a guest on. I had a blast. It's hosted by author and content creator Tony Tone, who is epic, and this show is basically like a personal portable career coach, featuring guests such as Olympic heptathlete Katarina Thompson-Johnson on the power of perseverance, myself on why happiness is the new currency in our careers, and many more brilliant guests and topics. Each episode will feature tips, tricks, and takeaways tackling a different workplace challenge to help listeners find the confidence to walk tall, a message that I completely subscribe to. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts, so check it out. So let's move into your four pillars and the first one being separate. Would you mind sharing why this was the first pillar? Sure. So I talk about the four pillars of growth in quarter life and In a way, if we go back to the fairy tale or mythological beginnings, 
I drew these pillars from really timeless understandings of quarter life development. And it plays all the way into, I mean, the, the modern moment. But the first step of any story is this experience of separation from the old. You know, it's the death of the old. It's the death of, of the former self. And it doesn't need to happen all at once. It can't happen all at once. But in some form, we need to step into our new lives and allow ourselves to separate from what came before. So I'll say for my own experience, you know, that meant going to college. It meant kind of leaving home in various ways at various times. I would come back for holidays, you know, then I had to figure out, okay, what's after college. It's a long physical process of what am I going to do? I also traveled abroad overseas by myself. And that was this whole own journey of psychological development, but there's physical separation that happens. But then there's also a long process of psychological separation to have conversations with one's parents or siblings or communities or college friends or high school friends or whomever to sort out, oh, this is who I am and that's who you are. You believe that about me, but that's not who I am anymore. Or I believe that about you, but that's not who you are anymore. So you're allowing the teasing a part of self to happen. And that's a long process. So that's the first pillar to separate. The second pillar is to listen. The second pillar is about really learning to attune one's ear to one's inner life and to one's sensory experiences. And it's the Goldilocks experience of, oh, mm, do I like this? Oh, do I like this? Feeling with one's body and one's being into the world. But it's also healing from trauma because in order to hear, we need to have ears to hear or in order to feel, we need to have our physical receptors available And trauma and woundedness really cuts those things off a lot. So part of learning to listen to oneself and to one's environment is is a lot of healing so that we have the ability to do that. And I I love this point because I think you really illustrate how it's okay not to know. I think sometimes there's this assumption that we all have that we need to answer immediately or need to know immediately. And actually this idea of if we just focus on listening, we allow ourselves movement and change and difference of opinion. Again, I think we are taught to be definitive in a culture that likes definitiveness and likes security and and solidity, but that's just not, that's not life. Doubt is really a very healthy thing and uncertainty can be a very healthy thing. You then move on to building, creating, cultivating, constructing. What was your inspiration behind, behind this pillar? So to build one's life, it's the willpower and the strength and the effort and the dedication and the commitment and the discipline that is the other side of, of listening, the receptivity of listening. So it's in Taoism, it's the, it's the yang to the yin of listen. It's about really saying, okay, It's not just that, can I hear myself and listen to myself? It's, can I put these things into action? You know, can I say, I know I've always wanted to learn to ride a bike and cycle in that race or something that, that people talk about. People have these strange, unusual, almost mundane longings. Every different human has these things that don't seem to have any point. What's the point? We ask ourselves that all the time. Yeah, but what's the point? I do kind of want to do that, but what's the point? So to build is about one, taking oneself seriously and just honoring, okay, I'm an individual with these strange 
urges that I can't fully explain to anyone. But if we listen to them and if we create the life we want and put in the discipline for, you know, in this little example, to learn to ride a bike and to practice hard and maybe to engage in this race that we've always wondered about, you never know where that leads us, right? You never know in your individual story where that's trying to take you if you just listen. So it's about really putting in the effort and dedication then to manifest your own existence. And I think this then brings us on to integration. Yeah. So the fourth pillar is to integrate. And it's more about celebrating what has unfolded and what each individual has created. So for me with clients, watching moments of integration is just such a gift. I can't explain, you know, to see somebody going from struggling and pain and confusion to really trying to create their own life and heal And suddenly, I mean, it can often happen in moments where we're both sort of laughing and shaking our heads, like suddenly something has just been born, something has just happened. You know, maybe they've fallen in love with a healthy person, you know, maybe they've gotten a career offer, you know, a job offer they couldn't have imagined, maybe they um, finally decided to pursue a creative path that has just come into fruition in the most extraordinary way, but you see the universe rewarding someone, but it really is their own soul finally being happy. Like, yes, yes, yes. We've gotten here. This is what we were trying to do the whole time, you know? And so for me, it's, it's less a pillar of another thing to do and Mm. more just an honoring of celebration and witnessing so that it doesn't get buried with more like, okay, but I have to work harder or I have to keep Mm. to just say, oh, let's just sit back and take this in. It's so beautiful. And this brings me on to talk about the union psychology that you're trained in. And you also host dream workshops, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. I'd love to know more about, but you know, you could have chosen any psychology to have studied, but why this? Well, I was not drawn to psychology, actually, except through Jung's work, because I was not interested in a psychology that focused on the brain exclusively, Mm. or that focused on behavior exclusively. There was something reductive to me about both of those kind of just like wanting to go exploring and immediately hitting a concrete wall. I know there's something deeper. And Jung's work is all about digging into existence and the soul. And, but also it's very tangibly valuable. You know, Jung created the ideas of extroversion and introversion. Those words come from Jung, the notion of typology of how we interact with the world in that more robust typological system that ended up informing Myers-Briggs. There's so much in his work that helps us to say, oh, who am I as an individual? And how do I, as a, as a unique and important individual, as every individual is a unique, important individual, how do we orient to existence? Those questions that he was asking and attempting to answer are just much more interesting to me than, than the questions being posed by most areas of psychology. And it's interesting because you like astrology, but also at the same time, like you've got to do some work yourself <laughs> rather than hear these kind of these personality readings. What are your thoughts of and has anyone likened, you know, the quarter life to the Saturn return? Sure, yeah. And what was kind of Jung's thoughts on that? OK, so can I just define the Saturn return for folks? Yes, if please do. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so astrologically, the notion of a Saturn return is when Saturn 
comes back to the point at which it was when you were born in the sky. And that happens around every 28 years. It has sort of a 28 year cycle. And then it sort of passes through that point for about two years. So when people talk about their Saturn return, they're talking about around the age 28 or so in which astrologically people are put through the ringer. I talk about it as either being a wormhole or a black hole, which is to say it can either kind of be a time that sucks you down because it's expecting enormous amounts of rigor and focus, or it can be a time that if you've done a lot of preparation and kind of cleaning up of things, it can launch you forward, like through a wormhole, you know, it kind of launches you forward into your life. So I think Saturn returns are very compelling I don't mention it in the book because I'm not an astrologer. I didn't want to open up the field of of astrology as just another kind of complicated element for folks to wade through. But I think that part of what I'm aware of is that, you know, whether it's each of our individual astrology or life in general, you know, we're all being put through the ringer in different ways all the time. You know, I had a very intense and complicated astrological transit when I was in my very early 20s. Um, that wasn't my Saturn return, but was exceedingly complicated. And understanding some of the astrology of that, bless my mother, was helpful for my orienting. But really then when I came to my Saturn return, I I felt much stronger (laughs) to handle that. As far as Jung goes, Jung, Jung did astrology charts for many, most of his patients, apparently on his own, he created their astrology charts. He was very, very, very interested in astrology, uh, much to the chagrin of many of his colleagues. I don't know much of what he said about Saturn returns specifically, however. It's absolutely fascinating. And your dream workshops is something that's important to you. I would love to hear more. Why dream workshops and how do you think they can be helpful? Well, dream work is a core part of Jungian psychology, right? The psychology that I'm based in. And it was a core part of Jung's work, Carl Jung's work. But it's about being able to listen to the language of the soul, basically. It's one of the ways, it's not the only way, to hear what we call the unconscious, right? So that it's not just listening to the kind of frontal lobe, left brain, I want this, let's do this, let's go after this. It's also hearing the responses. So dream work helps to, for folks who are dreaming, it's it can be just a huge relief to to spend time with one's dreams in a way that is exploratory and curious, and you can gather information from what your dreams are saying. So it's an important part of my work. Sometimes it can be some of the only things that Jung, that people know about Jung's work, and there's much, much more, but it's a huge part of it. Are you still hosting workshops and can people sign up? Yes. I am always scheduling new things. I've yet to just repeat one course, um, but we might be doing that more because it seems sort of silly to not repeat courses that people are excited about. (laughs) So um, yes, I am still teaching a lot and we'll be posting new courses soon on the website, which, you know, my institute, the Salome Institute. Amazing. Now, where is the best place for people to ask questions that they've got further questions? I imagine the book is every single place where you find books. I will put those links in the show notes, but where's the best place for people to find you and find out about new courses or working with you in some way, shape or form? My institute where I teach and will be again, sort of teaching more as the book comes out and all that is salomeinstitute.com. So the institute is called the Salome Institute of Jungian Studies. I think in Britain, you call it Salome, but uh, it's S-A-L-O-M-E institute.com. 
And then my author website is my name, satyabayak.com, which is tricky. None of this is easy to spell, unfortunately. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm excited to just be in conversation with readers in general. This is, you know, a threshold, certainly, to have this book coming into the world. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Not Perfect Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would deeply appreciate it if you wouldn't mind subscribing and leaving a review and perhaps maybe sending it to a friend who also might enjoy this episode. I can't tell you how grateful I am for those that share this podcast on their social media or with friends because it helps the show reach more listeners. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. So if you've had any thoughts or you want a specific specific guest coming up in future episodes just let me know shoot me a message on instagram or twitter it's just at poppy jamie and so until next time stay flexible stay true to you and stay leaning into love ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.